Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm going to start the recording. This is only the second time I've done this, so I don't really have like a canned intro. When I do social distancing radio, then I just like start up. And I always have a sip of reading wine at the time um, because I feel like that helps me if I'm going to be the one reading. But if I'm not reading, then I don't really need the reading wine. It, it helps people like have the experience of being at a convention, I think. Yes. But I don't have reading wine tonight. What I have is my iced tea, which is not iced at the moment, but, um, so I guess it's more like my room temperature tea, Mm -hmm. but I make my drink, my beverage is that I make, um, iced tea using Splenda and regular tea and jam and ginger lemon for our jam and lemon ginger. Uh, and it comes out like really tangy and spicy and it's really delicious. And it makes me think of like, the orange spice tea that my grandmother used to make stuff like that that sounds really good it is pretty good if i do say so myself that's like my standard work day drink mm-hmm. we do a of that with um constant comment and a little bit of mint and some splenda and it reminds us of the um larry's family has a, a area that was on his dad's farmland that they kind of turned into they built a pond and it's kind of been the family picnic area for decades and so we call we call it pond tea which doesn't sound very appetizing it's not made from the water in the pond it's the kind of tea that the ants always brought for us to drink with the picnic at the pond so pond okay i love that that's fantastic (laughs) is that what you're having this evening no, I have I have my fizzy water with me. It's it's my polar water uh, because I'll have my my reading one later. Um, Thursday night I get together with um, three other author friends, Jean Marie Ward and Jeannie Adams and Nancy Northcott, and we do a virtual coffee house where we're all on Zoom at our own houses and we talk for like ten minutes every hour from like eight o'clock on, but yeah. we mute and everybody works on their stuff. And then we surface again at the top of the hour and chat for another 10 minutes. Sort of like we all went to Starbucks to work together, but we're not at Starbucks. Wow. Okay. So I love all three of them. They're all fantastic. And that is so amazing. That's such a smart idea. It's kind of fun. I mean, you know, the other thing is we've we've got our video on. We've got our mics muted. So you get to see everybody's look of intense concentration as they're staring (laughs) at they're not looking at you. They're looking at their manuscript. They're going, they're making all these, you know, great faces like everybody does because right. 
they're not really looking at you. So it's kind of fun. That's awesome. I'm saving yeah. my life for that. Oh, that's fair. That's very fair. Yeah. Um, I might have had reading wine tonight, even though I wasn't reading, except that I was a responsible adult earlier this week and gave myself a hangover in the middle of the week. And so I was like, maybe I'll just lay off and play it safe for a couple of nights. Those, those get harder and harder to recover from as time goes by. Yeah, that's what I'm discovering. And like the less resources I have available mentally to recover, you know, the fewer resources. The bounce back from those gets harder the further removed you are from your 20s. For sure. Ooh, yeah. Now, our, our youngest turns 21 in, gosh, three weeks, which doesn't wow. seem possible. But, um, and, and this summer sucks to turn 21. Yeah. Um, but we told him to, you know, come home. He can raid our, our uh, liquor cabinet. He doesn't have to pay for an Uber. The, the liquor's a lot cheaper if he just raids ours because, you know, the upcharge is so amazing. <laughs> and, you know, we'll mix him whatever he wants. And uh, so he can turn 21. Yeah, it's not the same, but it's cheaper. He doesn't have to worry about getting home, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's amazing. Come home and raid the liquor cabinet. Yeah. I, I grew up in a household where... Um, I was informed repeatedly that people who have wine with dinner are going to hell. And so mm. I savor that reading wine. Uh, I, I grew up in the same kind of household. And, and the kicker is that my, my dad was a doctor and this was back in the, you know, late 60s, 70s and on. And the, every year at Christmas, like the drug salesman would bring him a fifth of scotch or, or whiskey. And he didn't drink. So he put them all in this old refrigerator down in the basement stacked, you know. And when he finally passed on, you know, they'd been in there for as long as I could remember. So I thought, well, if they haven't gone bad, and I don't think whiskey can really go bad, no. I've got a refrigerator full of 30-year-old scotch down there. But no, by the time I got to clean out his house, he had thrown it all away. What? Yes. And let me tell you, cleaning up that estate, I needed all that scotch. Right. Oh, I feel like I feel like there's no better parting gift than, yes. than at least here's a fridge full of scotch. Yeah. No. It was one of the first things I looked for when we got into the house. All the scotch was gone. That's so disappointing. Yes, it was. Oh. Well... <laughs> In happier topics, <laughs> what did you bring to read? Well, I'm not sure it's happier topics because I brought Edgar Allan Poe. I love it. I love him. He's he's always been one of my favorites. And I actually brought two of his poems, um, Nevermore, uh, The Raven, and Annabelle Lee. Oh, fabulous. And, uh, I, you know, I... I won't say I was exactly Wednesday Adams when I was a kid, but I always loved ghost stories, monster stories, vampires. If it had a werewolf or a vampire or a witch in it, you know, all the better, which got me in a lot of trouble in parochial school. Um, <laughs> so many times. But um, I, I loved Poe because all of his stuff was 
uber creepy and you know he was walling people up and putting them in barrels and and he was just you know goth before goth was cool and so i as a kid i just poured over his stuff and and i also loved hamlet and macbeth because they had they had ghosts in them you know totally. so it had a ghost in it i was i was there so that's yeah. why i went straight for poe in sixth grade my sixth grade teacher, who was one of the best teachers I had ever, she read the Telltale Heart to us out loud in sixth grade. And I was just like, immediately hooked. And then mm-hmm. in high school, I was not like an uber goth kid, but I wanted to be. And, uh, and I was the kid who like sat on the front porch in Horseshoe, North Carolina, and read the giant leather bound, you know, collected works of Edgar Allan Poe, and like didn't really talk to that many people in my little hometown um and so he has a very special place in my heart i love him um well feel free to fire it up and read us some Allan okay. poe all right well let's see let me do annabelle lee first because it's a little more you know a bit of a downer and then um the raven isn't exactly cheery but compared to annabelle lee it is and it was funny i i Instead of just printing out loose pages from the Project Gutenberg, I um, found one of my books of poetry, and I also found handwritten, um, this is probably me circa eighth grade from the stylistic printing. There aren't any hearts over the eyes, but it's about (laughs) that age, um, where I had for some reason, decided to completely transcribe Wilfred Owen's Dulce at Decorum Est, um, which is also a bit of a downer. I kind of <laughs> like dark stuff, but okay. So Annabelle Lee, quick quick story on this. Uh, yeah, please. This poem, because my grandmother's name was Thelma Lee, and she was born in 1895. And so back in her elementary school period, when, you know, they were very big on people memorizing poetry and all that there was a a boy who i don't know whether he just liked jerking her chain or whether he had a crush on her or what but he liked to annoy her by calling her thelma bell lee like the poem and so i've always just sort of remembered my grandmother with this even though this is not really a happy poem but i like (laughs) the cadence so just roll with it i like the cadence go for it um and i'm going to mute myself so that i don't make any sound that interrupts you It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabelle Lee, so, her, so that her high-born kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not, so, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that a wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger far than the love of those that were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. 
For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life, and my bride, in the sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb, sounding sea. Oh, love it. That's just so dark. <laughs> yeah. And I, if, you know, there's so much that is urban legend around Poe that we aren't sure we know, but they make good stories. And, and there's always been a lot of debate. And one of the versions I heard was that he had fallen in love with somebody who was taken by a fever. Um, and that was certainly very common in his time. Totally. And, you know, not like it's uncommon at the moment. Right. Um, so I don't know what the truth is about that, but I just always love the cadence and the wordplay on that. The moon never beams without bringing me dreams. Just some of his phrasing in this is so beautiful. And the idea that their love was so special that the angels coveted it enough to destroy it uh, because it was something they couldn't abide. Um, there's, there's just so much in this poem that makes it not, not a drivelly romantic poem and then you know does he drown himself in the end he he lies down by the side of his darling in the sepulcher there by the sea this does not sound promising <laughs> right <laughs> I, part of it also for me is that like to our ears now i don't know if this is true of when it was written but to our ears a line like the moon never beams without bringing me dreams is almost like sing songy and, and, um, and like carefree, you know, <laughs> it, it's almost like a child's nursery rhyme rhythm. And uh, I love the way that that like adds this extra layer of sort of like skipping, holding hands into the inevitability of demise. Yeah. And, and you get, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea, interesting thought, yeah. can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't run into the word dissever very often. Yeah. But again, the cadence can ever dissever. I, I love it. And, and you're right. This almost has, in some ways, a song lyric feel to it. Totally. This is something that somebody could record right now, today. These could be days. one of those murder Oh, sorry. We, we skipped for a second. That's okay. Um, I said it could, it could almost be one of those murder songs. We've been listening to the Carolina Shag channel on Sirius XM, which is the beach music channel. Yeah. It's a lot of rhythm and blues, so you get a lot of murder songs. I can't tell you how many times I have heard Staggerly. I was like, okay. Well, let's just go from that to, you know, don't, don't mess around with Slim. <laughs> um, it almost has that, that feel to it as well. Yeah, it does. It's, uh, it's really musical in a way that feels playful. Um, yeah, despite how dark the actual content is, there's, there's kind of a disparity there between, you're right, it kind of has that, that cadence that's like skipping, but wow, the content is, everybody yeah. is dying and being taken away and maybe killing themselves. So, yeah, it's an interesting, um, 
it, it's an interesting <laughs> it's an interesting interplay and it makes you wonder when he was writing it did it feel that way to him because literary trends change you know yeah we've since you know the 50s maybe or before we've had this love affair with non-rhyming poetry uh which has kind of gotten looked down on the rhyming stuff because oh this other stuff is so much more hipster cool um and it's all beautiful in its own way but some of this has kind of fallen out of vogue yeah and i to viewed through my generation x sensibilities i see this as or, or i hear this as sort of um poe saying something as grandiose as not even the angels, not even all the demons can separate me from my love. But I'm going to express that in this like sing songy sort of casual way. Like he is just going to be flipping the bird at the universe as he trips right off the edge of life. And, mm-hmm. uh, and to me, that's a very appealing tension. I really love that. Yeah. Um, I just, it's, it's an interesting poem when you start unpacking that. And so to me that, it, that just brings a lot of depth to it. Totally. And now here we are almost 200 years after it was written. Yeah. And we're still able to talk about it and still able to like, it's still able to reveal things to us. And it still connects with us as human beings, which I find so fascinating because I was confession here i was not a literature major because i kind of hated most of the stuff they wanted to make me read in literature class that's fair um, I, I just really couldn't couldn't get into it because they were writing stories about terrible people who were had no redeeming features but we were supposed to stick with them for like 500 pages why life is short <laughs> why would i waste that much time reading about people who are absolutely awful yeah. and miserable I, I mean, really, there are better things to do. So I, I was not a lit major. Apologies out there. Um, but I like this stuff because it still spoke to me. And I mm-hmm. felt like there was a connection that I didn't get to Hemingway or Fitzgerald. Um, they didn't speak to me. Poe spoke to me. And you can make of that whatever you want. You know, I've always <laughs> been the kid. I think that I think Poe speaks to a lot of us who write creepy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was kind of the gateway drug to creepy stuff because he was the socially acceptable creepy stuff you could get in lit class when you had to take English. Yep. They could get they could let you read that. There was a lot of other stuff they couldn't let you read, but Poe was old enough by then that you know he counted as classic. Yeah. In a way that Stephen King didn't. Yeah, right. He was too old to be controversial. Mm-hmm. I do remember reading Cujo for credit in high school and uh, and my teacher liking that I was reading something that was off the syllabus, but not liking that something that was pop, you know? Well, you know, one of the things that we saw with our own kids was that the teachers all decided that they needed to read above their grade level. Great. They were terrific readers. So they told them they could only read college level stuff. What they never accounted for was that just because a 12 year old can read the words doesn't mean that they have the life experience to understand what it's talking about. Yeah. And so on the plus side, we had a lot of teachable moments as they read through whatever it was they were reading and then brought it and said, 
I'm not really sure what this is talking about. And so we sat down and had wonderful conversations, <laughs> but I don't really think the teachers ever thought about maybe what kind of stories are told in that higher level of language. Not that I was trying to shield them from knowing about things. It's just, you have to have a certain amount of life experience under your belt to even make sense of certain things or to understand what's being said. So yeah, yeah. that's sort of weird. Now, I didn't like Hemingway. I didn't like Fitzgerald. I did like Faulkner because that guy was creepy. Oh, I loved Faulkner. I did. Rosemary? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I did a massive research project in high school on Faulkner and talking about like the real places in his life and how he represented mm -hmm. them in his books and just fell in love with him that way. Just couldn't get enough of him. And that whole almost post-apocalyptic feel of the uh, post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction South, where there, there were all of these plantations gone to ruin and mansions in disrepair and, and just this very, um, it, it really did kind of have that dystopian post-apocalyptic feel to it. And then the, the crazy relatives who were, weren't locked up in the attic anymore and all the people who had kind of been driven over the edge by losing things. It's a really fascinating landscape. A hundred percent. Such great stuff. Um, so feel free to jump into your next Poe. Okay. Well, this one is probably familiar, at least for the first few stanzas to most people, and it's The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, that it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' I said, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering long, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore, merely this and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely there is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what that threat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. 
Open then I flung the shutter when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not an instant stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness, broken by reply, so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his song one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore, of nevermore, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining that with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels he hath sent thee respite. Respite and Nepenthe from the memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind Nepenthe, forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempter tossed thee here ashore, desolate, yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a fair and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. 
Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. So good. Oh, my God. Oh, I love it so much. And again, this is one of those things like the Annabelle Lee one that kind of starts with, hey, I'm alone in the house. I hear something. Wait, there's somebody at the door. No, there's nobody at the door. That's kind of creepy. Wait, there's something at the window. Wait, there's nobody. There's a bird. And then the bird talks. And then we're into this whole bird or devil tempter. And, and, and again, another dead love of his life who yeah. shall not be named. Um, and, and almost a descent into madness by the end of the poem. This guy is not, this guy is unhinged by the end of the poem. <laughs> yes, very. And I, I love the reference to Nepenthe, you know, the, mm -hmm. the drug from the Odyssey where uh, you drink it and it like banishes grief from your mind. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he is so eager to reach for the possibility that this is an occasion that will relieve him of his suffering, uh, sort of. And, and also so bitter about the possibility that his suffering would be taken away from him. Like, that's, that's what he has. That's what he's going to cling to. Yeah. And, and I, I just love how he goes from, he, he also touches on this whole loneliness of, well, the bird's here, but other friends have flown before and he'll leave me just like my hopes. And it's another one of those poems where, you hear it recited almost as doggerel in high school, but when you really start pulling it apart, there's a lot of complexity here and a lot of darkness. Yeah. It, one of the things I was thinking as you were reading it is he came from a time when death was much more readily available in a lot of ways. And it's easy for me to imagine people in that time not being as affected by death by necessity because there were so, because death was so much more common, but clearly this, proves that death was just as affecting, just as tragic. People missed the dead just as much then as they do now. They just had a lot more grief that they had to carry around with them. Well, and they were permitted to feel it and express it in public ways. In fact, you know, you look at the whole Victorian period with their very complex death rituals. And then you look at the time period um, you had people who were losing loved ones, well, if they didn't lose them in childbirth or lose children very, very young from all sorts of reasons. There were cholera outbreaks and, and yellow fever outbreaks. There was the whole civil war. Yeah. Um, and aftermath that we don't think about a whole lot, but people who didn't have enough food, didn't have shelter, you know, had, um, didn't have clean water. So you're right. They, they were just overcome with loss, but they were allowed to show it. Um, in modern society, really everybody wants you to get back on your feet and back up and, and, and you're not really permitted. I, I always felt, when I've lost loved ones, I always felt um, 
very envious of the Jewish tradition that gives you a year to grieve. And nobody expects you not to grieve. And you're allowed to have that. And then you're supposed to pick back up and move on. But you have a whole year instead of, you know, like, hey, you get a week of bereavement leave. Hope you're over yeah. it. Um, so I, I think they just had so much. And it wasn't hidden from them. You know, people, um, you had the funeral in the parlor, which is why after World War II, we have living rooms now because the parlor was for dead people and the living room is for living people. And that was when they started having funeral parlors outside the house. I never knew that. So we've outsourced the whole parlor because the embalmer used to come to the house. Yeah. And you'd have a wake and everybody would come and sit with the body in the house. And then you would take the body out feet first and you drape all the mirrors and you'd, you'd cover all the pictures and glass so that the ghost couldn't find its way back in. But they lived with that so much more intimately. And now we outsource it and they don't even, you know, they send an unmarked van or an ambulance to pick somebody up because yeah. God, the neighbors know they might right. love property values. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily healthy for us. No. <laughs> you got to feel what you feel. Yeah. I remember when I was in my first job after college, uh, my supervisor in that job lost his parents very unexpectedly. And um, it was the first time as an adult that I knew someone who was going through that experience mm -hmm. of losing someone who was really close to them for whom they really deeply cared. And he was back at work five days later and just completely checked out, you know, just, I would say that he was there mentally, maybe 20% of the time. And everybody gave him some space about that. But like, clearly he did feel pushed to be back in things. And then a year later, my oldest, my uh, oldest sister died very unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. She was by far the member of my family to whom I was closest. Mm. And it was very shocking. And I was completely checked out. And I was back at work five days later. And and just worthless at work. And I still had the same supervisor. And it was an opportunity for him to say, I have just been through this basically. And you just don't need to worry about being really checked out. Like show up to work because the company says you have to show up to work. But I'm not going to expect much of you for a while. And I've always been like so grateful for that mm -hmm. because you're right, our society practically expects people to like be strapping on roller skates on their way out of the funeral. And, you know, it's just, I don't think that people get any sort of, we by acknowledging the vulnerability of others, we acknowledge the possibility that we ourselves will be called upon to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're just not able to do culturally. No. And, and I think also you've touched on something, which is that sudden death is much harder to deal with than an anticipated death. So both of my parents, uh, my mother had been incapacitated from a stroke for a long time. She was 90. Um, it was kind of, um, we wanted her to be set free from where she was because she was really kind of trapped. Sure. My dad was 90 with Alzheimer's. Um, it wasn't a surprise that he, he didn't linger, but it wasn't a surprise. When you get to be 90, you're kind of braced for it. 
Um, my husband's mother, on the other hand, yeah, she was 80, but she was fine until she wasn't. And, and it's so much harder when somebody, you don't have that lead up of somebody being sick or incapacitated to kind of brace yourself for it and prepare yourself. They're fine. You've just seen them and then they're gone. And I think that at any age is so much harder um, because you're just, you know, blindsided by it. Yeah. There's a thing in the poem when he first hears the raven outdoor outside and he thinks it might be Lenore coming mm-hmm. back. And I have always loved that line because whenever anybody that I've been like close to and seen regularly in my life has passed away, then I have experienced a period of time where I described uh, how, how much I was still including them in sort of my universe of what is now. Mm-hmm. Um, that I would say it as I kind of just expect to look up and see them walk through the door, you know, and I feel like he's really nailing that there. Yeah. That, that sense of, Oh, I need to tell. Oh, I can't. Exactly. You know, it takes a while, like you said, to um, take them out of your mental bin of who's, who's around you. Yeah. And it's still, even many years later, catches up to you there's still times when um i'll be doing something that i used to do a lot when i was a kid with my parents oh i should tell no never mind. um yep. because it's just ingrained and yeah. yeah i i i love the way he in the poem transitions from being alone to looking for that lost loved one and then that kind of descent into he goes from fear into almost a descent into madness until at the end he's got this staring match with this demon raven and uh and then you you really have to question is the raven even there right you know this whole thing a psychotic break yeah uh i love it so much (laughs) um so what did you bring us of yours to read well Let's see. Do you want funny or do you want poignant? Oh, it's up to you. It's your call. Well, they always say always leave them laughing. So I'm going to go with something from Night Moves, which Great. is a Spell, Salt, and Steel series uh, volume, uh, something co-written with my husband, Larry Ann Martin. And this is our snarky monster hunter in the wilds of Pennsylvania. Northwestern Pennsylvania, where the men are men and the sheep squatch are, deeply respectful, except when they aren't. I slogged through a, wooden area near, a wooded area near Tamarack Lake, slapping at deer flies and gnats and cursing under my breath. I'd had a quiet Friday night in mind, binge watching a few movies, drinking some beer, and hanging out with my pet Doberman, Demon. Then the call came, and so here I was, up to my balls and scrub grass, chasing a woolly cryptid through the woods. Unfortunately, nothing about that scenario was the tiniest bit unusual. The red filter on my flashlight hat supposedly made the light harder for my quarry to spot, but I just thought it gave a cheap horror movie effect to the whole thing. I bent down and peered at some fibers caught in a pricker bush. They looked like strands of dirty white wool, which told me I was on the right track. Up ahead, I caught a glimpse of a pale hunched figure, and I picked up my pace. I had a modified harpoon gun with a grappling hook tip shaft attached to a heavy-duty rope, and a secret weapon about to be deployed as soon as I had a better visual on the creature. And there he was, in all his sheepish glory, this particular sheep squatch stood about six feet tall on his hind legs with a coat of matted wool. It had a head like a bighorn sheep and a muzzle like a husky dog and a yeti had a mistaken night of passion and birthed the love child. Not to mention, the thing smelled like ass. 
my buddy, Officer Pat Carmody, had called me in because the critter had been gnawing on people's landscaping and he was afraid someone would call in the media and we'd have a monster all over TV and it would draw all the wrong kinds of attention. Things could get ugly and they definitely could, especially if the sheep squatch was indeed a male because those things are hung like a squirrel, proportionately, I mean. Not a pretty sight when it stands up naked on its hind feet. Not to mention those big horns, and when they butt like a billy goat, somebody's going flying. Sheep squatch also have a temper and a nasty overbite. I checked out the area earlier, trying to be prepared. Not that anything I ever planned went the way it was supposed to, but I figure it's the thought that counts. Hey, ugly, I shouted, and the sheep squatch stopped. I hefted the harpoon gun to my shoulder and shot. The grappling hook shaft sailed through the air and caught like a burr in the creature's thick woolly coat. The other end of the rope was attached to a water ski handle and I grabbed hold and slung my harpoon gun over one shoulder. At the same time, I could hear the yapping of a border collie, which had been let loose from its kennel and crashed through the scrub toward us. So the sheep squatch stood to its full height and let out a baleful bleat. It turned its beady eyes on me, then swiveled its head toward the collie and took off running. The whole idea behind the harpoon and grappling hook had been to steer the creature toward the cage that Pat and my other friend, Officer Louis Marino, had helped me set up earlier in the day. Instead, I found myself sheep-squatch skiing across the slick grass, skidding and stumbling and trying to keep up. I've got him, I shouted, although it was a toss-up over who had whom. The border collie was on the job, nipping at the monster's heels, hedging it in so it lumbered in the right direction. The sheep-squatch tried to bolt, and I threw my weight in the opposite direction. At six foot two and about 190, I'm not a little guy, but Sheepy was solid muscle and probably had at least 70 pounds on me. Get the shot, I yelled to Louie as I lost my footing and tumbled along like the tin can on the string behind a just-married car. Trank him! At best, I slowed the sheep squatch down a bit. Mostly, I probably just annoyed the fuck out of him as he tried to swat at the place where the hooks were lodged in his fur. Louie fired, but the dart hit the creature in the arm, not the ass. That just pissed Sheepy off and he started to run. The border collie yipped and barked, trying to keep Sheepy headed toward the cage. I stubbornly held onto my grip, skidding on my dupa, and then managing to get on my feet, trying to make sure the creature didn't get away from us. Shoot him again, I yelled. It didn't take. Both Pat and Louie were local cops. They weren't park rangers, and roofie and cryptids wasn't in their job description. I heard two shots, and Sheepy jerked when the darts hit. One was center mass in his chest, and the other stuck out of his big hairy backside. Sheepy bellowed and swatted at the darts, managing to knock the one in front away, but he couldn't reach his butt. The dog nearly had him to the steel cage, filled with yummy treats like clover and slices of bread. Almost on the threshold of the cage, the creature stopped and glared at Louie, who was closest, and took a roundhouse swing at him. Sheep squatch aren't the most graceful creatures, even when they haven't been pumped full of tranquilizers, but this one punched like a drunk. His fist went wide, but Louie stumbled getting out of the way and fell down, landing on the remote for his police cruiser. He hit it just right, setting off the strobe lights and sirens. Sheepy stiffened, bleated an alarm, and wobbled. I knew he was going down, and I didn't want to have to haul a couple hundred pounds of rank sheep squatch ass into the cage, so I plowed into him from behind. He fell forward into the cage and didn't move. The border collie ran up, wagging his tail, taking credit for the whole thing. Does that count as sheep tipping, Louie asked, as he got to his feet and surveyed the unconscious monster. <laughs> Yay! I love that scene. That's so great. <laughs> I'm so glad you read that. Well, thank you. And the Sheep Squatch is indeed a legendary Pennsylvania cryptid, so I don't make this stuff up. Really? Mm -hmm. All of the cryptids that we use in the series, pretty much all the cryptids we use in all of our series come from some kind of legend or lore. We don't make them up out of whole cloth. Wow. We may add a few details for the plot, but they, if you 
if you Google sheep squatch, it will show up as a Pennsylvania cryptid. That is amazing. Uh, <laughs> wow. So tell us about the series. Like, tell us more. Sure. Um, well, Spell, Salt, and Steel, like I said, it's a snarky monster hunter in the wilds of Pennsylvania. And this is, if you look at a map of Pennsylvania, the little neck that goes up by Lake Erie, that's where both my husband and I are from. Northwestern okay. Pennsylvania. Uh, very rural. So we're, you know, a couple hours north of Pittsburgh. And um, it's, it's a lot of fun setting the series in the area that we grew up in. And we pretty much take that whole northern third of Pennsylvania, um, which Pennsylvania's interior is one of the least settled areas in the United States. If you've ever driven across I-80, you know what I mean, because it's nothing but timberland and, and um, it's pretty remote. So you've got these vast forests. They're not virgin timber. They, they have been timbered, but they've also been replanted and they're largely unoccupied. So who knows what's in them? Uh, a lot of deer hunting, a lot of bear hunting, uh, gorgeous countryside, but it's also very, very remote. You can imagine a lot of things being out there that nobody runs across. But it's been fun to revisit uh, a lot of the the urban legends that I heard as a kid. You know, there was a, a large hill that everybody said, don't go up Radio Tower Hill, there are pig people up there. Well, we used pig people and something. Uh, <laughs> There was an abandoned amusement park that stood for years, decades, uh, just kind of slowly falling apart. Ah, we used that in one of them. Um, I've used that, that pond area that I was talking to you about that was in my husband's family. We've used that at least once, maybe twice in the series. There was the one where the kid picks up a grimoire, but he doesn't know it's a real grimoire and he's using it for his D&D game. And he ends up accidentally raising the dead that are in a cemetery that are below a flooded old town that has now been flooded for a, a lake. And yeah. so the dead are coming up through there. And that was kind of fun because uh, that one's definitely set at that pond. And then my dad owned some land outside of town and I put werewolves in it. Um, I've also done at least two or three battles in the cemetery where my parents are buried. Uh, there, was, there was a naked gnome that's in one of the Spell Steel series. Uh, there were werewolves. It's a gorgeous old cemetery, and I think it was used in a fight scene in Nikita. It was one of the um, oh. one of the movies. Yeah. And it's it dates from like the 1850s, and it's got all these big obelisks and not a lot of weeping angels, but the big monoliths and and um, all the all the famous dead people from town who have streets named after them are buried there. But right. Biggest thing is it has the most gorgeous rhododendron and mountain laurel and azalea that are like over a hundred years old and they are these massive tree-like things. Um, so it's truly a beautiful cemetery, but I've put werewolves in it and, and naked gnomes. I, I mean, why not? It's like, yeah. it's begging for it. Yeah. So um, the Spell, Salt, and Steel series, you've got a guy who got into monster hunting because he went deer hunting with his dad and brother and uncle and cousin, and they ran into a Wendigo. And Mark's the only guy who survived, and so he's kind of doing his, um, his absolution by killing things so that nobody else has to live with them. And, That's amazing. You know, have to lose somebody. And yeah. when we start out, he's, he's very much alone, but over the course of the series, he 
He picks up friends and allies and supporters. And of course, all of the urban fantasy that we write as Gail or Gail and Larry, and that I write as Morgan Bryce, all interlace. So Mark knows the people in my Morgan Bryce series and they call him for help and they show up in each other's books. So it's one big kind of massive monster universe. I love it. I love extended universes. I love it when a writer has extended universes. Uh, that's just so much fun to me. Well, it's so much easier than trying to keep them all separate and keep it straight. I did this largely because I couldn't keep 12 different universes straight. Um, Understandable. It's so much fun fun to have them show up and know each other. And and you get to see the characters that you've gotten to know in one book from a slightly different angle when you see them through the lens of another character who's working with them or meeting them for the first time. And that's kind of fun also. It just seems like it would be a relatively small world and they'd all know each other. Yeah. I, that's, I love everything about that. That is so magnificent. So, yeah, we just have a lot of fun with the Spell, Salt, and Steel series. It's, it's a spinoff of the Bubba the Monster Hunter series. Okay, so I was a- going to ask, was it Bubba the Monster Hunter or is it Shadow Council? Um, no, Shadow Council is the um, Joe Mack series that we write. That is a spinoff of the Shadow Council. And that's what the guy who um, died in the Homestead Riots and was brought back by the uh, dark Slavic god of blacksmiths to be a um, warrior for the oppressed. Um, he's fun. That's the Roaring Twenties monster hunter. Oh. Um, mm. that, that's kind of fun. But yeah, the Spells on Steel is just... just uh, how how funny can we make this? We get to drop the F-bomb a lot. It is the Bubba-verse. Yeah. Um, and John and I have done a number of oblique little uh, mentions of each other's stuff for a while, even before we started writing this. Um, he has a couple of my characters show up unnamed in one of his Bubba books. And I mentioned something about, yeah, we ought to send this to that guy down in Georgia we work with. And, you know, if you knew what you were seeing you got it, and if you didn't, it didn't matter. But I have a lot of fun. Fun for you to read, but it should also be fun for us to write. Yeah. That's so true. Um, there is a, I write a series in the Shadow Council archives, and there is a super secret, undisclosed project in the works to do a crossover between my series and somebody else's series in that world. And it is so much fun for us to just be in the planning stage and talk about, okay, what horrible trouble could our characters make for each other, basically? Mm-hmm. And like, how would they know each other? And how, and like hearing each other talk about the cities that each of us writes and the ways that they are culturally similar and culturally dissimilar and just all that kind of stuff is so much fun to me. I love crossover stuff. Well, it was, it was fun. Um, in one of my Deadly Curiosities uh, books, Unholy, there was a, no, sorry, Inheritance, um, you get to see the guys from the Badlands series that I write as Morgan Bryce show up and lend a hand. And then in Unholy, which is one of the Witchfane books by Morgan Bryce, it's set in Charleston, so they get to meet the Deadly Curiosities people. Right. And you meet the Deadly Curiosities people through their eyes. And then on the way up to handle the next case, they say, well, we're down here. Let's stop in Myrtle Beach and meet Simon and Vic. We've always just talked to them on the phone or via computer. Let's stop in at Myrtle Beach, take a few days off. Well, you know, of course, it doesn't turn out to just be taking a couple days off because, you know, 
they end up having to solve some kind of supernatural crime while they're in Myrtle Beach with Simon and Dick, who are from the Badlands series. So it's just so much fun. You just have to just have to keep everybody straight and connected yeah. for who goes where. Very much so. Um, so where can people find you? I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, the website is gailzmartin.com. Uh, Twitter, Gail Z. Martin. Pretty much everything is Gail Z. Martin or GZ Martin. The Z is important. Without the Z, you get somebody who writes inspirational fiction. I write vampires. You want to make sure you have the Z. Um, and, then, and then for Morgan Bryce, it is B-R-I-C-E. Again, morganbryce.com, Morgan Bryce author uh, on Instagram, Morgan Bryce book. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find as long as you get the Z and spell Bryce right. Rockin'. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. I'm afraid we went over time. I apologize. No worries. I just wanted to make sure you're not late for your thing with, with everybody else. Now I, I can show up at any time, but thank you for having me. And, and if you need to cut this up and drop stuff pieces out, I, I won't be offended. I'm, I'm sorry. I know we've gone almost double. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll edit, but only so that we sound really super smart. Oh, like, okay. I never I changed can, the content I, of what anybody said. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. Thank you.